Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm Eric Lures. And I'm John Fusco. It is June 7th, 2018, and on this week's show, the latest film tech and gear revealed at Cinegear 2018, the key to being a great cinematographer in the digital age, and as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. Welcome to this week's show, coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York. As always, we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. So, welcome back. We missed you all last week. We missed you especially, John. Thanks. How was Portugal? Good. Good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still pretty jet-lagged, so I apologize if I'm incoherent. This show's going to be a thrill a minute. (laughs) Well, the show's light on John, so we'll, we'll be fine. We'll, we'll give him extra pep. Right, Eric? Eric's doing exactly. jumping jacks right I, now. I, I'm still excited. I thought we were going to do a Memorial Day podcast, but we didn't. I had a barbecue all set. I had the the speakers, the, the microphones, and then no one showed up. Oh, which, man. I know, I know. We'll make up for it today. Okay. I will. I'm going to have enough pep for everybody. Okay, let's do it. Um, I do have one question for you, though, John. You went last night to the Brooklyn Film Fest screening, and it's the first one that uh, any of us have been to. So what do you think? It was good. I mean, I just went and saw Shorts program, and uh, I actually judged Shorts for them last year, so it was kind of funny to uh, have it. I mean, I guess that's not really coming full circle, but <laughs> I guess this is just like a coincidence. No, you're actually just less important this year. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I saw my friends uh, Short, Michelle Uranowitz, and Daniel Jaffe, and uh, it's like the fifth time I've seen it, but oh. um, she is in my short. She's the lead actor in my short, and Jaffe uh, was script supervisor, so I just wanted to go and support them, and um, it was cool to see some of the other shorts. They have like a really international program there. I think I, like there was only two American shorts in the entire program that I saw. The rest were, there was actually almost, there was, I think there was more Swiss films than American films. Well, um, that's really good to know, actually, for our, our foreign listeners, for our Swiss, for our Swissners. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a good festival to apply to. Now, if you were on that jury this year, would you recuse yourself knowing this connections that you have to these shorts? Would you say, hey, guys, listen. I need to step back. No, to be nope. completely honest, I probably would have submitted my vote for uh, my friend's short. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> but it's wow. a good short. That's why. I thought you were going to say I would have voted for the Swiss. You know, At least all of them. There's a lot of factors that you have to take I would have stayed consideration. Neutral. You know. Like the Swiss. Are you gonna? Exactly. Do you want me to? Do you want me to continue speaking, or do you want to keep talking? No, I want to interrupt you. <laughs> well, moving on then. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you in town, the Brooklyn Film Festival is going on through the whole weekend, so check it out. So we spoke a couple weeks ago about the surprise success of A Quiet Place, and now there's another indie having an unexpected level of success in theaters. The Sundance hit Ruth Bader Ginsburg documentary RGB, which I loved and have mentioned on the show several times, opened five weeks ago. Now for a documentary to have a theatrical release at all is still rare, and this one continues to expand its territory and make money in an even more rare way. In fact, IndieWire reports that the film is on track to exceed $10 million in ticket sales and become Magnolia's biggest grocer ever. Huge congrats to my friends, directors Julie Cohen and Betsy West. And if you haven't seen it yet, get on out there. Are they going to share any of that $10 million with uh, the No Film School team? Well, they shared their insights in Ooh. an article that I posted and <laughs> will uh, put in the podcast post. 
So on the other hand, there's a film doing a lot less well than projected. Solo, the latest Star Wars film, is being considered a box office bomb. If you consider the number of screens it opened on versus the number of people in the seats, Solo had the worst opening of all time for a live-action Star Wars movie. Now, according to The Hollywood Reporter, the film has still raked in about $200 million domestically and $400 million worthwide, which makes RGB's, you know, $10 million seem paltry. But considering those numbers against a $250 million production budget and with around $150 million in marketing costs, estimates are that the film is going to lose around $50 million to $80 million via its initial theatrical release. Now, I went to see it, obviously. If you listen to the show, you know I see all the Star Wars movies. And I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. It's kind of the perfect summer fun movie. And while some complain that John's buddy Alden Ehrenreich didn't fully embody the spirit of Harrison Ford... His performance grew on me, and even better, Donald Glover, who some of you may know is also Childish Gambino, <laughs> was 100% perfect baby Lando. Um, but all that's beside the point, because what really interests us here as filmmakers is another story making the rounds about this film and how it relates both to the craft of cinematography and the kind of ongoing digital versus theatrical debate. Yeah, so we had been discussing over the past few weeks about how Bradford Young was the cinematographer on Solo and how that was really exciting and very interesting. And there have been reports that he was going for a much more kind of grittier, realistic kind of visual tone for the Star Wars universe. And with that came much like a darker kind of image as well. So with people coming into the theater, maybe expecting that, maybe not, uh, some people were taken aback by how dark the image looked and how darkly lit it was and projected. Um, it turns out there's a reason for that, and it is not because of Bradford Young, but because of the theater's incompetence with screening it uh, properly. As IndieWire reports, when speaking with Boston Light and Sound co-founder Chapin Cutler, who is viewed as one of the industry's leading consultants on proper projection and theater construction, having overseen the rehabilitation and installation of over 170 millimeter projectors for uh, The Hateful Eight and Dunkirk roadshows that took place last year, he says, I was so upset with my screening of Solo. The problem is with one of these masters of low light is if the projector's brightness is off even just 10%, you lose all that detail. That's why every step along the way there are standards from when the image is captured in the camera to the creation of the DCP to the projection itself. The standards for light level basically haven't changed in 100 years of cinema. Uh, so this also made me think of when 3D started coming back like 10 or so years ago and people were like, well, I don't really like 3D in general. And also in order to get the 3D effect, I think the image has to be kind of dimmed down. It's a little bit of a darker, duller image that's being projected um, and how people were like a little less interested in that. So seeing this as well, obviously it was supposed to be a different look, but not this uh, dark. That seems more like a theater incompetence uh, projector projection has passed. I mean, it must be heartbreaking for Bradford Young to have this huge, huge break. And then people are complaining about what the film looked like. And it's really not his fault. And I never really thought about it before this story that, like, of course, you know, the digital cameras now can just pick up these, these sort of, um, you know, low light scenarios and, and have so much like interesting range in the shadows. But that doesn't mean that the digital projectors have sort of caught up with that. And um, if theaters, you know, are trying to get people into seats and the whole argument is that it looks better, you know, this is, this is a problem. 
Imagine watching something from Gordon Willis, like who's known as like you know the master of shadows. Like if you're watching The Godfather, I guess it would just be like a black screen. If, <laughs> if, if played at at this certain theater, um, but I, yeah, it just feels like a pofa on the uh, theater's part. Not a po- uh, what is the word <laughs> I'm looking for? Pofa, pofa, pofa. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I'm still, I'm still feeling that Memorial Day. Are you Day, also jet lagged? I'm also. I, I just came back from Portugal as well. Um, speaking of theater incompetence, I just wanted to mention this. Uh, there was an entertainment industry screening of Jurassic World: Fallen Kingdom that was halted on Tuesday after an unidentified man suffered a medical emergency. Attendees began yelling that the man needed medical attention during the latter part of the screening, Variety reports, and a rep for Universal said that a studio executive who was in attendance at the screening, which began at 2 p.m., he had immediately left the theater and called emergency services. Now, the reason I just wanted to bring this up is because it was a industry screening, and it was the very first screening of this new up-and-coming Jurassic World movie. Um, phones from everyone in attendance were confiscated uh, just so that nothing would leak or that, I guess, they would take photos or video. And so as this man had this attack, they, n- nobody could really call for help. In a way, like, you can't shout up to the projection booth like again you could do maybe 10 years ago 15 20 when there were actually like people up there in the projection booth at all times um and they couldn't call anyone so it went on for about five minutes and then they had to run out and there was not really like a plan in place due to the, from the am this particular amc in california to kind of deal with something like that and it, it just feels like when all of these things can kind of go wrong at once i'm forget it i'm never going to the movies again it's just too much too much but he's okay He is okay so and how was the movie? <laughs> movie was supposedly not that great, but we still have a couple of weeks to, to wait for that one. Fair enough. So one more mention in our headlines. Independent filmmakers like us are always looking for ways to make extra cash. And thanks to technology, we've had more opportunities than ever to get income with low overhead, as long as, of course, we have the hustle and bandwidth to be churning out content. So like these, some of these YouTube creators are literally millionaires. Um, one platform that's been helpful in that way is Patreon, which we've talked about on the show before, and I'm never quite sure whether it's Patreon or Patreon. It's Patreon. Patreon. Great. Patreon, which, uh, if you don't know about it, it's where your fans can pay for monthly subscriptions to get exclusive content from you, and you keep a whopping 90% of the income, which is more than any other similar service that we know of. So a lot of the video essayists that we feature on No Film School, for example, now put their stuff on Patreon. The company announced this week that it's taken its model a step further by purchasing another startup called Kit to eventually enable creators to sell their own merch through Patreon the site. Right now, it already lets you sell, well, kits, featuring collections of other people's products that you curate and get to keep affiliate income from. For example, Casey Neistat and Marquise Brownlee, or MKBHD, offer kits with their favorite film gear. We don't have data on the kind of income they've received from these, but MKBHD's video gear kit has been viewed over one and a half million times, so it seems promising. Worth keeping an eye on if you're looking for ways to expand your own revenue streams with your videos at the center. And now, fresh off the plane from Cinegear, here's Charles Hain with some tech and gear news. Hey, this is Charles Hain. I'm here with tech news this week. Most of our news is going to be built around Cinegear Expo. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Cinegear is like NAB, the National Association of Broadcasters that we always go to in April, the big convention in Vegas. And it's like that big kind of convention, but it's only for movie gear. 
So NAB has like broadcast gear and all these trucks for like news studios. And there's always a section of like satellite responder equipment that's fascinating, but maybe not really part of the filmmaking world. Cinegear is movie gear, movie gear, movie gear. Especially in the last few years, it's grown quite a lot. And there are a lot of companies like Red and Panavision that are fascinating to us, but don't really have a presence at NAB. Uh, For instance, Red doesn't even do a booth at NAB anymore. They have people there sort of set up at other booths and whatnot. But like Red has their own dedicated booth at Cinegear. Panavision has a huge booth at Cinegear. It is much more the filmmaker's showcase. For instance, last year Panasonic had the EVA1 under a cloth at NAB and then did the full announce with all the specs at Cinegear. It's a really savvy move if you want to make sure that People understand that it's a filmmaker-targeted tool. Uh, Cinegear, since it's in L.A., is also a wonderful place to run into hundreds of people, make new friends, run into people you haven't seen for a while. Uh, Really highly recommended. A bunch of people said hi to us while we were there, which was cool. And uh, we ran into some people we met through the No Film School podcast. Howdy, Duncan Smith. Um, Before we get to the bigger stories... There was a ton of cool stuff this year. We got to spend time with the Roscoe Mix in person from DG at DMG Lumiere. We saw the new Supreme Primes from Zeiss, and there's going to be more coverage of that coming out this week. However, there were two big stories that deserved a little more attention, one from the top end of the spectrum and one for the indies. So from the top, Panavision had a huge Cinegear, despite the fact that they already rolled out huge news earlier this year with an upgrade of their top-of-the-line cinema platform, the DXL, to the DXL2. So, building on top of that release, Panny rolled out two new fascinating lens options. First up, the new ultra uh, anamorphic lenses. They're a 1.6 anamorphic, so they're not the full 2-to-1 anamorphic you're used to from like 35mm, because the sensor in the DXL is already widescreen. So if you took that widescreen sensor and you 2X'd it, you'd get like I don't know, 3.7 or something, which is way too wide. This is a 1.6 squeeze that working with the native sensor on the DXL2 is going to give you a final aspect ratio of 2.76 to 1, which is the same aspect ratio as classic ultra Panavision films like Ben-Hur. Now, these are modern lens designs, modern housings. In fact, the Panavision rep said that the one we got to hold and check out had only been finished two weeks before the show. The combination of modern housing and ultra-wide aspect ratio is certainly going to be popular on, like, big spectacle films. On top of that, they also rolled out the new Primo X lenses, which are super cool in a very futuristic way. So, with the DXL line in general, uh, one of the best features is that there's internal focus motors on the lenses. So, you pop that lens on the camera. You don't need to attach an external focus motor to it to get remote follow focus. The motor's in the lens, you pair the camera with your follow focus system, and your full focus iris zoom control is already built into the lens. It's a really great feature. Now, all of those lenses have external focus rings as a backup. Let's say you want to do a hand focus or you want to get a reading. The focus rings are there for you. Those focus rings are done away with in the Primo X line because they're focusing on lighter weight, less center of gravity shift, and weather sealing. So, these are lenses with no rings on the outside. It's like a completely sealed unit, which is going to make these lenses great for aerial work, on drones, gimbal work, automotive work, where the lens is going to be out in the elements, there's going to be dust and wind and all sorts of stuff that you don't want getting inside your lens, 
And on all those jobs, you're going to use, use wireless follow focus anyway. So why even bother having the rings? Now, since there is no more ring, there's a super cool LCD screen on the side to show you where your focus is. On top of all that, they also rolled out a new variable ND filter, which is like an LCD in front of your lens, which you can darken or brighten. They put out some new accessories for the RED DSMC2, which are going to make it closer to being like a panavised camera and is going to make it a great like C camera, Steadicam camera for a DXL show and more. It was a huge show for the folks from Woodland Hills. At the other end of the spectrum was a company we haven't heard that much from before. The Korean light manufacturer Yigren uh, was showing a very cool light, the AR600 LED. This is a six-light LED, which is much like, you know, your old nine-light PAR or something like that. But it's six LEDs bundled all together. And because it's six LEDs that are pulling about 100 watts each, each, the whole unit only draws around 600 watts while putting out almost as much light as a 2.5K. You could plug three of these puppies into a single circuit and be set up for an entire night exterior with, like, a little extra room to spare on the circuit, which is crazy. Each of the bulbs can be individually relensed, so some can be flood, some can be spot. Uh, they're making their own softbox to soften out the light a little bit. It stays so cool you can actually touch the light even while it's on, like the bulb itself. Um, and then the insane thing is the price. It's going to come in around $3,000 total. It's not shipping quite yet, and the design isn't quite finalized, but they're working on some really cool improvements, and it's really going to change the way indie films are able to do light, night exteriors, I think. Oh, and it's also IP65 waterproof, so it could be a way that your rain night exteriors are even more easy to do than ever on an indie film budget without a generator. We cannot wait to get our hands on one and see how they perform in the field. For Ask No Film School this week, Declan Mahoney asks, what would you recommend for documentary filmmaking audio editing software? So Declan, I'm going to go out on a limb and recommend Adobe Audition. It's literally what we're recording the podcast in right now. It is what I personally do 99% of my audio work in, and I think it's going to treat you really, really well when you are just starting out, and then it's going to keep treating you well for a long time. There's lots of great tutorials on YouTube. There's a big community of people using it, and I think it has enough power to stick with you for a while. The top end of the market is dominated by Pro Tools, which has been the top of the market for a long time, and it's not going away anytime soon. It's a great product. I'm a Pro Tools certified instructor. I'm a big fan. But right now, in 2018, you can get a lot of similar functions out of Audition. And the linking with apps like Premiere is nearly seamless. The main place where Pro Tools still exceeds is, first off, user base. It's got a huge user base. But beyond that, major hardware benefits. You can plug it into their dedicated hardware for mixing. So if you want to be mixing on a big board or if you need their hardware accelerations, you can pile on dozens of effects and get real-time playback. you got to go Pro Tools all the way. But if you're at home working on an iMac and you just want to be able to, like, noise correct some noisy audio, de-click some stuff, EQ your vocals a little bit, do some audio compression, Audition has a really powerful tool set that is going to let you get to a sweet-sounding audio really quickly. Of course, Adobe is also always working to bring this functionality across apps. So it's getting easier than ever to do a lot of this natively in Premiere without even having to round-trip it to Audition. Although it sounds like 
if you want audio editing software, you're probably starting to realize some of the power of being able to go into a dedicated DAW, digital audio workstation. And I think Audition is going to give you some more of those tools than trying to do it natively in Premiere. The dark horse in this race is Fairlight, which is the audio tool in Resolve. Resolve is free, which is a big plus. It's a single application. You can just switch a tab over to Fairlight, also a big plus. Fairlight also integrates with some really big hardware. There's a Fairlight acceleration card and there are Fairlight boards. So Fairlight has the potential to be really powerful. However, at the moment, I don't know anybody using it. And I know some people who've played with it and not been super excited yet. So I wouldn't recommend it just because one of the things you want out of a learning application is you want to be able to go to YouTube and find 50 tutorials on something. And we're not there yet with... Fairlight. Um, now, I know Resolve has been putting a lot of work into Fairlight with 15, uh, DaVinci Resolve 15, which is still in beta. Uh, I haven't been testing the Fairlight there yet, but I plan to do some testing in Fairlight this summer. Hopefully, they'll be out of beta by the end of summer, and we'll start to see if Fairlight's going to be better. So if you want a zero-cost solution, you can look at Fairlight, but again, it's still new and sort of unknown. If you're willing to pay the subscription, I think Adobe Audition is a really strong tool, especially if you're already editing in Premiere. And then if you want the the Cadillac, as they used to say, um, Pro Tools is great, but Pro Tools does have a much different interface than you might be used to, and there's a little bit of a learning curve there getting used to how it sort of deals with things differently than some other programs. Declan, good luck, and let us know what you decide. If you are not into summer blockbusters, there's good news. There are a lot of indie films coming out uh, starting this month, really, for you to check out. First up on VOD and limited theatrical release is Bernard and Huey. This is a comedy based on a screenplay by legendary Pulitzer Prize winning author Jules Pfeiffer about two old friends who reconnect after 30 years apart and the woman who complicates their lives. It was the closing night film at Slamdance this year, and it's actually directed by Slamdance founder Dan Mervish and stars David Kochner, Jim Rash, and Mae Whitman, who I love. Do you guys know Mae Whitman? She's like really familiar. cool. Yeah, she was on that show Parenthood, and she's kind of like, she's got like a Winona Ryder when Winona Ryder was cool vibe. Oh, oh, so before the shoplifting incident. Long before. Okay. Who? Uh, Wait, who? Mae Whitman, M-A-E Whitman, you know? Who? Okay. There's an owl in the booth. May West. <laughs> That's an Arrested Development res- reference uh, for for anyone who caught it. Oh yeah. So well, John, when you were away, we now can't talk about Arrested Development anymore. Oh, there were some things that came some out. That there were some things that so we can't even speak. Creepy about deep that corner. Anymore. Yeah, I see. We we put them in there. Oh, so, man. back to Bernard and Huey, who I haven't seen the film, so I don't know whether they belong in Creepy Dude Corner or not. Uh, the film, as I mentioned, is also doing a limited theatrical rollout across the U.S. starting Friday. And Dan Mervish has done a ton for the independent film community through Slamdance. And he's also contributed to this site, to No Film School, with helpful posts like advice from his book, The Cheerful Subversive's Guide to Independent Filmmaking. So please support his new film if you can. And coming to theaters on June 8th is Hereditary. This one has been number one on my list of movies to see ever since I saw and heard how terrified people were of it at Sundance. And I was so pissed that I didn't do the necessary research to see that A24 was distributing a horror movie that was screening at Sundance. I still don't know how I missed that one. 
but apparently the best way to go into this movie is by knowing nothing at all about it, so I'll only give a brief synopsis on what it's about. When the matriarch of the Graham family passes away, her daughter's family begins to unravel cryptic and increasingly terrifying secrets about their ancestry. It's being distributed by A24, as I said, and they have some pretty credible boutique horror instincts with releases like The Witch and It Comes at Night to their name, among other great genre films. The film was written and directed by Ari Aster. It's his first feature, and it features a blistering performance by Tony Collette. So... I, I guess I, I went to a screening at the Alamo Draft House on on Monday. Oh, is it out? At uh, it Alamo? comes out on Friday, but they did this advanced screening, and the director was there with some of the cast as well. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Tony Collette is really in- incredible in it. Uh, it's a very much a I said it's like Long Day's Journey into Night meets like Poltergeist. Okay, kind of weird. Like it is a very sad, somber family drama about grief, and it gets very, very depressing. Um, and there are these long, sustained dialogue sequences of arguments and anger amongst the family. And there is a horror aspect to it as well. So it actually has more of an impactful feel than I than I expected. And uh, I'm going back now to check some of Ari Aster's shorts out, which are pretty interesting as well. He was a AFI grad, um, so a lot of those exist online as well. But yeah. Let's do a compilation post with some of his shorts. Let's do it. We'll do it this week, folks. And Emily Booter, uh, RIP, Back to Life, Ghost Story, etc., is um, interviewing, uh, is she interviewing Ari or someone else she, from Hereditary? She, she interviewed Ari, yeah. Yeah, she interviewed Ari, I think, at Sundance. And she, and that'll go up on the site this week, too. So we'll have some good behind-the-scenes stories about Hereditary. Was Alex Wolf there at the... Uh, that's, he plays he, the brother. Know, he plays uh, like a kid in it, yeah. Yeah, he was there. I, it was him, it was the brother and the sister, the characters, the brother and the sister and the director. So I'll, I'll go off on a little diatribe here. But I, when I was still trying to be an actor in college, actually, I did this, I did background work for a movie called Hairbrained with uh, (laughs) Brendan Fraser and Uh like him, this kid, Alex (laughs) Wolf. Okay. And this kid was like the biggest (gasps) bag I have ever met on set. Like I, I like Brendan Fraser. Yeah. Like they treated, no, Brendan Fraser. Oh, Alex Wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But Alex Wolf. Sorry, well, I'm well, not going to endorse you. Don't give anything away, but maybe he dies in the movie. I hope so. It's Dang. it's in many ways he's a very big part of the movie. It so, was like yeah. one of the most uncomfortable experiences I've ever had on a set. Like, oh my goodness, can yeah. you tell us like anything in particular? I mean, it's just like the director of this movie was really he. I mean, he treated his extras like dirt, and mm. he you could tell that everyone was sort of like catering to this super privileged child actor who started yelling at the extras and sort of demeaning the extras what the hell yeah and like the director kind of encouraged it um so it was yeah it was a really bad situation um it's one of those things that like background like actors who are just trying to you know get their start or whatever have to put up with when they're trying to break into the industry and sort of unconventional means is uh, the horrors of being a background extra, but, and it's, it's unglamorous work and it sucks. So to like come up against a director who's terrible to the background extras, is just like a really, uh, discouraging thing, I guess. And then to come up to it with an actor who's just like had everything handed to him. And then you're like, a at, since he was a child, and then to be like working so hard and like struggling to get by 
watching this kid like basically have an entire vehicle of a movie to himself and just be super spoiled and ungrateful about it was anyways i'm sorry well, you had that experience i don't want to start like beef between no films goal and this well, kid we, yeah. I do. Wolf. Yeah. well there are some very nice people in the movie as well very nice the, the young little girl was in matilda on broadway oh. it's like very cute i mean and i like really want to see this movie yeah. so. aside from this one bag we definitely want to support the work of gabriel of Byrne, the filmmaker yeah. though too this, like first time yeah. feature gets picked up by a24 yeah. we like those stories that's the thing is i'm sure this director was way if if a, I'm sure this kid has probably maybe grown up a little bit since then, I'd hope. Uh, but I'm sure this director has more sort of a sensibility for, like, his entire crew mm. and the entire <laughs> now, cast. Now that I think about it, there are not too many extras in the movie. Now that yeah. I think about it. There are not too many big crowd scenes or anything like that's that. That's funny. Maybe that's why. Well, I'm really – that's actually – I'm so glad that we get to segue to this next film because it's about a really, really, really nice person. Yeah, and also he was part of a kid's show, and he wasn't a bag. This guy <laughs> – this movie is called Won't You Be My Neighbor. It comes out June 8th. And, of course, it's the preeminent Mr. Rogers documentary uh, that premiered at Sundance in January to rave reviews. And its trailer alone has caused millions to break out in tears of nostalgia. The film is an exploration of the life, lessons, and legacy of iconic children's television host Fred Rogers. And it was directed by Morgan Neville. You know, just one thing that annoys me about this title. Is there a question mark at the end of it? Or is it just won't, is, I was it, is wondering it a question? Or is he just saying it like as a declarative statement? Like, mm. Which I guess you can't really, right? It's like you, you yeah, don't have to be like, his won't neighbor. Won't you be mine? Won't you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Right? Is I it a question? I think it's a rhetorical question. It's a rhetorical <laughs> It's like we already live next to it's each like other. A, That's yeah. why we're talking. So like, we're obviously course, neighbors. Yeah. Of course we're neighbors. Like nobody really ever moved away from Mr. Rogers either. No one. I mean, okay, now you're turning to? into a horror. No, movie. no, I don't know. A24 <laughs> picked it up and distributed it at Sundance. The, the great neighborhood. No one ever leaves. <laughs> I don't know. Think about it. Anyway, Emily on fire this week is also interviewing the director of "Won't You Be My Neighbor." We'll have that up on the site, and there's even one more film coming to theaters, which Emily is covering, and I don't know how to pronounce it. Does anyone? Pofa. No. <laughs> Well, it's spelled N-O-S-S-A-C-H-A-P-E. Say Nasa Chape. It's Brazilian. It's Portuguese. So, or maybe I was Nosha, definitely going for Nosha Chape. Nosha Chape. Yeah, that's probably it. Is coming to theaters on June 8th. Who wants to talk about it? <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'll talk about it. You can hand off the reins to me. I'll say that Nosha Chape, which premiered earlier this year at South by Southwest, tracks the rebuilding of the Chapa Coenche football team in Brazil or Brasil. See how good I am at this, Liz? I'm way better than French. I'm actually really impressed. It's because I just spent uh, some time in Portugal, which I uh, I went to Obridos. I just assume that every S is pronounced like sh, and then it sounds better. So anyways, back to the summary. After an airplane carrying this football team crashed, and by football, I mean soccer for American listeners, uh, international listeners, that's still football in your case, not American football. Anyway, so back to the summary. Am I doing a good job? Am I doing okay with this summary, Liz? You're doing so well, except it's like a sad story, and I just keep wanting to laugh because you're being funny. Okay, well, let's see. So where was I? 
This football team was on an airplane, but then the airplane crashed on November 28th, 2016, and it killed all but three of the players. You might remember hearing about this story. Anyways, with exclusive access to the new team, families of the, the deceased, and three surviving players, this documentary shows a team in a city divided about how to handle tragedy. It's directed by Jeff and Michael Zimbalist, who are two of the most dynamic doc filmmakers working today. They also did a film called Momentum Generation that premiered at Tribeca this year and will be coming out soon. And uh, last but not least, opening in theaters is Christina Cho's Nancy, uh, which stars Andrea Riseborough as the title character. After her Parkinson's-ridden mother, who is played by Anne Dowd, suddenly passes away, Nancy is unsure of her next move until she views a missing children news broadcast one evening, and she feels she may be actually the long-lost daughter shown on the TV screen. Uh, That young girl disappeared from her parents, played by the great J. Smith Cameron and Steve Buscemi, decades prior, and Nancy, now at the age their daughter would currently be, feels she may actually be their lost kin. Uh, so it's it is a mystery um, whether it's an act of sincerity or deception about is this woman really that long lost child Nancy or is she not and she's doing it for other gains uh, is a question that the movie is constantly playing with. Uh, it's it's very well done, very tense, uh, and an, and Dowd between Nancy and Hereditary is actually going to have one heck of a weekend now that I think about it. She's in both and she's pretty prominent in in both as well so it's worth checking out i interviewed christina at sundance and we'll link to that too where did andrea rasen uh come from like i remember like birdman she was she in birdman had, she had a role in birdman uh as one of like the actors in the cast yeah, oh, you yeah. might say Couple she's scenes. on the rise she's in the bro. rise in this borough uh <laughs> And then I don't know, like, and then she just like her name started popping up in so many. She was in what four films at Sundance? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and like really good. And she, I just saw the death of Stalin too, and she was in that, and she was like hilarious in that. She's just like such a versatile actor. She was in Mandy. I don't know if you guys have heard heard of Mandy. I've heard of Mandy. Mm, It doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, Um, it's this movie with Nicolas Cage uh, that I saw at Sundance, (laughs) and she is also in this movie and a few, there's a few others. Yeah. It's weird, like her her name is like, yeah, always around, and she's very respected. But if you were trying to think of like the, what is the most prominent? Movie. Yeah, like I don't know if one exists. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Well, she's awesome. She's quite good. Now for some upcoming deadlines. Uh, first, we have the AFI Cinematography Introductory Intensive for Women, uh, which they do say is the CIIW, uh, with a deadline of June 15th, which is uh, a week from Friday. Taking place from August the 3rd through August the 6th at the AFI Conservatory in L.A., the four-day course is open to females interested in obtaining further knowledge on the art and craft of cinematography. Applicants need not have previously shot a film in order to be deemed eligible, but must be at least 21 years of age and able to attend all four days of the intensive. Housing and travel are not provided. Uh, in addition to submitting a bio as well, a statement of interest, and a work sample. So the work sample, they actually list as being, you have many options for that as well. So maybe if you've made a short or commercial or your own personal material, it doesn't need to be feature-based at all. Uh, Include that in the sample that you submit. And in Rachel Morrison is a graduate of AFI cinematography program. And with her being the first female cinematographer nominated for an Oscar, this felt like the right time to kind of push forward 
that uh, demographic. I think they said that only 4% of people behind the camera in current film and television industry are women. Oh, Lord. Uh, don't quote me on that, but the actual quote is in the post. And the Southern Documentary Fund Research and Development Grant, as well as their production grant, have deadlines on June 15th. If you live in Alabama, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Carolina, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia, you could get $5,000 for a project in the research and development stage or $10,000 for a film in pre-production, production, or post-production. The SDF is a trusted partner for veteran, emerging, and first-time documentary producers across the region, helping them direct their lenses and microphones at powerful Southern stories and critical issues. And we've got another opportunity for the ladies. The Women in Film Finishing Fund has a deadline on June 15th. Teaming up with Stella Artois for the second year, this fund gives out four grants of up to $25,000 in funds and in-kind donations to films that inspire social change, with special consideration for films with a water theme. With which... a water theme? <laughs> well, water is a big part of the, the female existence, isn't it? It's also a big part of all, everything, of all guess, existence. Right? But I guess it's, everything. It's a little random. I think it's funny. I mean, a lot of these grants, like, they get um, their funding. They Like, they get their own funding from... Uh, other types of nonprofits that have sp- special focuses, and so it ends up kind of coming out in that way. And it's funny. Could you I think the most on-brand, I like short to submit to this would be like a sort of drama or comedy about a woman's water breaking. Wow, wouldn't that be good? I was thinking water park, but I mean, yes, I hear you. That's right on target. So ladies. Totally right. Although I suspect that the the funder's talking about more like environmental issues. Right, right. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. But you got to be able to like, you know, flip those conventions on on your head. You're right. That's good, John. Maybe you should go for it. (laughs) If you can't film it in Alabama, you can get an extra $5,000. This is sexism. What I meant is maybe I should go for it. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Would you like to produce my film about water breaking? I don't think I'm allowed to. No, no. I think if the director's a woman, we're fine. Hold up. Are you sure? It's teaming up with Stella Artois, so can it be about beer? Definitely could be. Wasn't there a documentary about beer at South by Southwest this uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beer. Uh, it's called like Wheat or something. Something like that. Are you sure that wasn't a documentary about, about Wheat? wheat? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's possible. It was, dire- yeah. it was directed by Ben Wheatley. Okay. And, oh, my God, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Just one. All right. Let's get back it's on track, two you weeks. guys. Let's get High Rise was slide. about Wheat, too, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, I think so. It was. Because it's about, you know, Wheat rising. Right. <laughs> wow. Was, uh, not Weedikit, which was about weed. No, no, no. What that was yeah. a beer movie. Sorry. Yeah, it's hops maybe. Hop, hop, hoppy times are here I'll again. Get it. I'll get it. Okay. Anyway, the Women in Film Finishing Fund grant gives grants to filmmakers working in both short and long formats in all genres, narrative, doc, etc. To apply, the filmmaker must have completed ninety percent of principal photography and have a rough cut at the time of application. Are you sure that wasn't Sean Baker? It was Ben Wheatley. Who oh made, Sean, I rise? Yeah, Sean Baker because he bakes. He, well, yeah, he has oh. a cake. That's, that's no, a good I think point. High Rise was was Ben Wheatley. High Rise was yeah. But what about the wheat documentary at South by Southwest? Oh, that was that, okay. So I remember it's, it's called Brewmaster. Oh, Brewmaster. Brewmaster. 
You by are right. Doug Tarola. Wait, Jeez. I just got it. I just got it, it John. Sean Baker. Yep. You yeah, need to think a, about ba- wheat and baker. it's bread. Yeah, my puns take a little bit to. No, we can't all be as that? fast as you even jet lag. That's why he, he, well, you can't bake a tangerine. So I don't know where I'm going with that joke. <laughs> you could bake a tangerine. You could, I mean, could I you make know a, how tasty I mean, he made a movie called Takeout. You could bake anything. You know, that was a food. Well, it's not really about food, but it's a movie named Movie Called Takeout. So. <laughs> the Florida Project is about a Waffle House. Is it? Ooh. Well, in my opinion, when I watched it, okay. that's what I thought of. <laughs> <laughs> what? I mean, the, there's a the, good diner scene. The the mom, the Mooney's friend's mom, doesn't she work at like a Waffle House? Yeah, she does. But, right? You know. It's a diner. I thought it was a Waffle House. Come on, you no, know it no, is. It's a, a, it was a Waffle House. Because they have all those things on the menu, and that's the whole thing. She eats all those different kinds of foods, not just like breakfast foods. Yeah, but it's like the menu that you take from behind the uh, napkin dispenser. I feel like that's so Waffle House. I don't know. Mm. So if you know the answer, was... tweet at us. Tweet at us, boo. <laughs> and but speaking of Waffle Houses, there are a lot of Waffle Houses in Atlanta. Uh, I, I'm actually going to be in Florida very very soon, and I, I'm planning on g- going to Damn a it, few Eric. myself. Get with the program. I was trying to segue us back on track. Oh, here. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Back to Georgia. Atlanta. Take it away, John. Okay, yeah. Here, just keep passing me stuff. You set them up, and I'll knock them down. Here I'm we go. The Atlanta it. Film Festival has a deadline on June 14th. It takes place from April 4th to the 14th, 2019 <laughs> in Atlanta, Georgia. Home of Waffle House. This is probably the earliest early deadline out of all the film festivals <laughs> in the world, and as such is actually known as the quote-unquote hella early deadline. <laughs> So it will be its 43rd year and is the Southeast's preeminent celebration, second time I've used preeminent, this show of cinema and the flagship production of the Atlanta Film Society. It is an Academy Award qualifying festival and has been named one of the top 50 festivals worth the entry fee and one of the 25 coolest film festivals in the world by Movie Maker Magazine. It presents local and international work selected from over 6,000 submissions representing 40-plus countries, and cash prizes are awarded ranging from $500 to $1,000. Uh, and with a deadline of June 14th is the Calgary International Film Festival, which takes place in Calgary in Canada, uh, Alberta, Canada, from September 19th through September 30th, 2018. This is the extended deadline, and it's on Movie Maker's 50 festivals worth your entry fee. It is an Academy Award qualifying festival. And citizens of Alberta, take note, it's free for you to enter. So for them, you won't be saying, won't you be my waiver? <laughs> wow. Thank you. Which, that's which... a tie back to earlier in the show. I just want to reward listeners for that, keeping going for the entire What episode. about won't you be my wafer? Why should be my wafer? That's another wheat joke, oh, which God. is another tie-in joke. We're, we're going to bake everything up. Okay. And on June 15th, the late deadline for the Mill Valley Film Festival takes place. This is a festival which, of course, takes place in Mill Valley, California from October 4th to the 14th, 2018, and it's hometown to the recently deceased Emily Booter and the rival hometown to John Fusco, who is me. Alive and kicking. Ow. One of the 20 film festivals worth the entry fee by Movie Maker Magazine, Mill Valley Film Festival has a knack for spotting emerging talent as well as drawing legendary artists like Carlos Santana. (laughs) Which is just an assumption. How is 
on my part. Movie but Maker's 50 festivals worth the entry fee. This one's on Movie Maker's 20, 20 festivals. <laughs> this is a more This is higher for the list. More selective list. Yes. Uh, the festival accepts shorts and feature-length work in the following categories, narrative, documentary, experimental, animation, children's films, and youth-produced. Fun fact, your very own host, Liz Nord, used to work at the Mill Valley Film Festival. It's lovely. You know what she used to do there? I know because I've heard this story many times. Yep. You'll just have to go back and try and f- you'll have to listen to every single episode, though, and try and uh, find out that story for yourself. Great plug, John. Uh, speaking of plugs, uh, it is now time for our weekly, or should I say Wheatley, words Ooh. of wisdom. Nice. hey Here's a few. Bread. That's a good word. I like that word. I'm uh, hungry. Donut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, loaf. G- loaf, yep. Yeah. Okay. G- grain. Good job, team. Grain is another one. And here are some more. I mentioned a few weeks ago on the show that I will be in L.A. this weekend at an event called Become 2018, which I feel like has to be said like that. (laughs) I think we are 2018 now. Do we still have to become it? (laughs) Oh, boy. Um, Where I will be interviewing DP Hans Charles on stage. We talked about Bradford Young earlier in the show, and Hans Charles actually came up as his camera assistant, which is how Hans Charles met Ava DuVernay and then sort of made his own name as a DP for her movie 13th. The interview that I did with him and put up on the site this week was really chock full of words of wisdom, and we actually got pretty deep. When I asked him about what qualities make a good DP, he got into a little history lesson about how maybe in the past cinematographers could afford to not pay attention to how they treated other people on set because there was so much pressure to get the shots on film and not mess up or expose the celluloid. But, like, we don't have that excuse anymore in the digital age, so you can't really get away with, like, just being an asshole DP. Uh, and he kind of goes into that and, and what you really do need to have to to succeed. So here's a clip from our chat. I think the number one thing for me is you have to treat people with respect. You have to internalize that despite the amount of money that's online, despite all the pressures, we are not necessarily doing something that's monumentally important to society. I think it has an offshoot importance. But we are not first responders. We are not teachers. We are not obstetricians. We are not midwives. We actually do not hold anybody's life in our hands when we're doing this. That's the first thing to keep in mind. That means we do not have to speak to each other and deal with each other in a certain way. We have the privilege of working in film in 2018, working in film where there's no, we're not exposing you know, celluloid and someone's going to lose their job. We have that privilege and mm-hmm. we should act accordingly. And part of the problem with the film is, or the industry is, we're still, we still deal with each other with the old pressures. We've not adapted to the new, pre- the new reality of the technology. But for me, it's treat people with the utmost respect, which is something, I'm not going to lie, I sometimes struggle to do. Because sometimes when you're a shooter, you're in your own head and you're just talking and you're not thinking about what's happening outside of your own head. So I always have to remember whatever I'm thinking or feeling is not the most important thing. To not yell at people. I certainly should never humiliate anybody. Um, I should learn how to deal with my frustration 
in a way that always has a positive outcome and could let people leave whatever interaction with a positive taste in my mouth. Um, every day of shooting is a new opportunity to let go of old things and old frustrations. And so I think that's the first attitude to take on because I think mm. in this new world, that's going to be the leading edge. I'll link to that whole interview in the podcast post, but we only really scratched the surface of his story there. So if you want to hear more and come meet us both in L.A., there's still time to sign up for that event at become2018.com. Yeah. Can we just not be assholes on set? Can like anyone just, you know, I feel like that's a pretty good rule. It's just like, don't be an asshole. And now for our shout outs, June is Pride Month around the world. So big shout out to all our LGBT listeners. There's been such a mainstream explosion of stellar films with LGBT themes that have had releases in these past couple years. Moonlight, Call Me By Your Name, Beach Rats, and Disobedience immediately come to mind. And a lot of outlets are also taking this opportunity to release or showcase such work to celebrate Pride Month. One of these worth mentioning is Sundance Now, which curated a special collection as part of its Take 5 series that you can start streaming today. It's called Take 5, Beyond the Parades, and it includes five documentaries on various LGBT issues. One of these is uh, called Becoming More Visible from my fellow film fatal director Pamela French about transgender teens coming to terms with who they are. These films are all streaming exclusively on Sundance Now, which offers a free trial so anybody can check them out. One more important shout out goes to a very special someone who has a birthday next Monday, none other than No Film School's own drone expert and the most handsome aerial DP around, Mr. Randy Asulto. Happy birthday, boo. Also next Monday, we have a new interview podcast in which I talk with doc filmmaker Stephen Robert Morse, who first made his name with the Amanda Knox documentary for Netflix. He has a pretty unique and useful take on producing because he actually went to business school. So his whole model is built around making high quality films more efficiently and for less money. And who doesn't want to know about that? We get into details and practical advice in our conversation. So look out for that on Monday. Meanwhile... Listen, first of all, just I have to apologize if you're gluten free. This episode, yeah, you know, yeah, it wasn't we're sorry about that. We yeah. try to be inclusive, and I, yeah. you know, feel like we yeah. left you out yeah, a little yeah. bit there. We just we don't talk about food enough on this. You know, we didn't mention the uh, the W word this week. Uh, Wheat. Uh, oh, no, weather. not weather. We didn't mention weather this week. No, we replaced it with wheat. We replaced it. Yeah, we need. When Emily was here, we talked about food a lot. We talked about food. A lot. Okay, we'll bring it back. Yeah. We'll bring it back. We'll do a cooking show. We'll do a cooking episode. I'm st- I, you guys, I'm so hungry. We always record at lunchtime, so I'm thinking about food the entire time. Okay. Well, we'll do it. Yeah. So while we're going off to lunch, please uh, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. <laughs> Great segue, huh? Um, yeah. Look for the No Film School podcast on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. And, of course, the ratings that you guys give us and the comments help a lot. Um, You can also read about everything we talked about in this uh, week's episode in our weekly podcast post at nofilmschool.com, where you'll also find new articles every single day about the art and craft of filmmaking and what's going on in the industry. And we love it when you stay in touch. So, you know, tweet at me, boo. I'm at Liz Film. I'm at Eric Lures. I'm at Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. We're all at No Film School. And we will see you next Thursday. Happy Pride. Tweet at us if you know the Waffle House is in the Florida Project. Lunchtime.